having a heart attack, you idiot. My name is Matthew Kroll. And I can't wait for the next Fast and the Furious movie. It's going to be lit. My name is Shakir Dad. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film Vice. Vice Principles? Not starring Rachel Vice. Oh. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, I know. It might have been. I might have enjoyed that if had that been the case. Uh, she could have played a mean Dick Cheney. <laughs> Just those words sound wrong <laughs> all put together. Um, That's my brand. Right. These words sound, sound wrong real. all put together is yeah. my official, uh, my online image think, and brand. I think that's our second T-shirt. That's our go. second piece of merch <laughs> right there. Uh, this will round out basically all the Oscar Best Picture noms We've... right in time for the Oscars. Done it. Um, which would be, uh, that's, uh, I guess, well, you know, at the end of this episode, we should do, we should do our picks. You know what I like? What? This is what I'm going to say. I like that every Oscars, when we get close to or we see all the films, we just can congratulate ourselves like we did a big thing. Oh, we congratulate ourselves way too much oh, on this, I, on this saying, podcast. I'm saying I like it. I'm saying, uh, I don't know. I, I think it's I think it's pretty cool. Well, we got some other congratulations from people who reached out to us at our email at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at onlymoviepod. And this one's first one. Actually, Matt, do you want to take this? This is from The Blade. Oh, The Blade. Love hearing from The Blade. Uh, by the way, check out uh, Jonathan Blade's uh, own podcast called My Handle is Jonathan Blade, where he gives a uh, shout out to a lot of technology podcasts that uh, I am often behind the eight ball on yes indeed 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 so jonathan says i know i should say i should call him the blade although i do love i, just, I, I call him the blade here's the thing i do love his uh you know how you can have like a twitter sub handle yeah uh his is janky old broke hobo spider-man <laughs> <laughs> and i was like yes yeah oh we're the same that's definitely me uh so here we go. He says, congratulations. This was a strong episode with an important discussion uh, that was not quite as satisfying as it could have been because all parties were con- were considered and reasonable. He's, of course, re- referring to our, our separating art from artist episode last week. Uh, also, I think that I just picked up a new podcast in Your Fave is Problematic. So uh, thank you very much, Jonathan. We appreciate the... We, 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 that was a super fun conversation. It was a great conversation and really happy to have Your Fave is Problematic on the episode. Uh, uh, really helped us out, and I think a lot of people chimed in with uh, how they had discovered your favorite problematic through our episode, um, which I really enjoyed. Uh, I think I want to just chime in with one thing. Um, oh yeah, and obviously we could be less reasonable and less considered if you would well, prefer. That's <laughs> also a little bit of our brand, though. This is something that since you and I and and uh, the hosts of your favorite problematic, uh, we're all not monsters. I think that we it kind of is it's easy to f- agree. But also, it was the first time we were meeting. You know, you don't want to you don't want to like. Uh, uh, get get too heated in front of new people, right? I don't know. I didn't. I didn't really pull any punches because, again, I don't think that we're nightmare people. I think we're fairly, you know, we get nightmarish with each other because right. we're ar- normally the things that we argue about. I feel are uh, uh, don't matter, right? <laughs> and so I got to go in. <laughs> got to go all in. <laughs> Um, thank you very much, Jonathan Blade, for that. Um, we will try to be less reasonable <laughs> next time around. But I mean, no, no, I, I actually I spoke to Jonathan uh, via Twitter, and uh, he explained what he what he meant by that. And I thought it was uh, it was very he on the whole he really enjoyed the conversation. So uh, thanks again for listening in, and appreciate the retweet on that. Yeah. Um, we also got an email uh, on the same episode uh, from Jennifer, who's an uh, who we haven't heard from for a while. But we're very happy to have her listening along and uh, getting back in touch with us. Hello, Shahira Matt. 
have an email for a while, but I'm still loving the podcast. Good to hear. I'm listening to the episode on separating art from the artist, and I'm adoring this conversation. These more philosophical discussions surrounding how we consume pieces of art are fascinating to me. Also, it clued me into your favorite problematic podcast, which I hadn't heard before. I'm definitely going to be checking them out uh, today after finishing this episode. Uh, Jennifer goes on to explain uh, how she uh, had to deal with H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. Um, uh, who, of course, is the famous horror writer, who also may be somewhat racist. <laughs> uh, there's no maybe in that sentence. Just a little bit. What is that song from um, uh, Avenue Q? Everyone's just a little bit racist? Yeah, but H.P. Uh, Lovecraft is, is a not lot racist. Ju- yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think one of the interesting things that came out of that conversation of separating art from the artist, and I, ca- I, I believe it was either Elizabeth or Kristen who said this, is that uh, in the face of people like... And I think they mentioned Roman Polanski in that in that sentence. Uh, the question that they always ask is, "What are the artists that we didn't get because someone like Roman Polanski abused their power? Because someone sure. like H.P. Lovecraft, you know, marginalized other people?" Yep. And so Jennifer um, uh, goes uh, gives a lot of examples of other artists who uh, borrow from H.P. Lovecraft but have turned their work around uh, yeah. because they are minority. So it's re- it's a really great uh, email and a lot of uh, stuff that I really want to read there. Uh, but to sum up uh, in her final paragraph, I think respecting the importance of these pieces of art is important, but finding marginalized voices who can take inspiration from these works and elevating their own piece of art is equal, if not more important. Authors like Cassandra Kaur, Mira Grant, Greg Van Eckhout, and Sil- Sylvia Marino-Garcia are uh, writing amazing Lovecraftian horror from their own perspective adding more layers to the genre genre and making it better. I don't know filmmakers as well as I do authors, but I have to imagine that the same concept holds true. For every Polanski, there are countless filmmakers who saw his work, latched onto a kernel of idea, and let it grow into something they can call their own. And we have to find these people. Uh, anyway, I'm going to finish listening to the episode. She emailed us in halfway during Aww, listening, so that's, that's great. really great to hear. And uh, thanks for the interesting discussion. Yeah, no, thank you, Jennifer. Actually, there, there's sort of a the way that her email read, um, I and I, I didn't think of this during our episode uh, on Art the Artist, but... It is a little bit uh, like nature, and by that I mean I've been reading a lot of Dune lately. Right, you're, uh, uh, you're doing a podcast. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what we do uh, uh, on Twitch with extra credits, we do a book club every Tuesday at um, at eight fifteen Eastern Standard Time. Come to Twitch, extra credits. You can uh, we're going through Dune two chapters each week, uh, which lets you really deep dive into it. But Dune is a pinnacle of ecological sci-fi, and by that meaning, it, it it's very focused on the science behind the the science fiction. Got to get them spices. Yeah, uh, and. And the thing about it that it sort of got me thinking about, even in our art versus artist um, discussion, is exactly what Jennifer said. So here's here's a bunch of racist people. Let's just say H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft is racist, and that makes him a piece of shit, right? Let's just uh, just for this conversation, I'm, I'm generalizing incredibly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what does shit do in nature? Shahir? Evolve? No, no shit. Could, oh shit! What does yeah. shit do? What does nature? shit do in nature? It breaks down and and destroy and becomes fertilizer. Yes, and yeah. then that fertilizer helps other wonderful things grow. So I think if there's a way we can do that with, um, I think that's a great way to uh, a helpful way to look at problematic media, um, and still be able to try to get the good out of it. Um, even if the person who created it is uh, has some bad in them, I think it's a it's a it's a very um, holistic way of looking at things. So okay, yeah, uh, and just to that extent as well, I think uh, I um, I we talked a lot about Roman Polanski, but I want to call out two filmmakers that uh, 
I think are, you know, in, in the spirit of Jennifer's email that I think are interesting and, and, and taking his work or, or taking the idea of that work. And that's Jennifer Kent, uh, who directed The Babadook. Uh, oh, has a new yeah. film coming out that uh, released at Sundance called The Nightingale, which I'm really excited about. Uh, and Kate Shortland, who um, is, like honestly made one of my favorite films of all time, an Australian film called Somersault, and someone, Matt, that you will be very interested in because she is directing the Black Widow movie. Yeah. Just want to shout out two two, uh, other filmmakers that uh, don't get as much attention. Yeah. Uh, But one person who has got a lot of attention the minute we released our separating art from the artist episode is one Liam Neeson. Now, did you hear the Liam Neeson story? What did Liam Neeson do? No, I didn't. You didn't hear what the Liam Neeson? What did Liam Neeson do? Now, the, the reason I'm just bringing this up is because it happened the, literally the second we released our episode. I was going to make a joke, but I, I you know. I, Wait, I, what was your joke? My, my, no, my joke, uh, the day we were recording the Art from Artist, I was like, and um, of course we're going to miss one that happens exactly today. And it happened exactly ah, like that. I was now, trying not to put negativity into the world, but maybe just my thoughts. I, I don't know if this is exactly one of those conversations about separating art from the artist, but the conversation about canceling Liam Neeson is happening right now. Um, and in <laughs> fact, the, the the publicity tour for his latest film, uh, I believe it's called Cold Pursuit, uh, is going. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's going uh, every, great. I'm sure it's going great on its own. Yeah, the uh, the PR person for uh, Cold Pursuit and Liam Neeson must be just banging their head against the desk right now. Basically, Liam Neeson was in a press junket interview, and uh, the interviewer asked him a question about, you know, you've been doing a lot of revenge films. What are your thoughts on revenge, and how does it work? And you know, this seems to be a sort of common theme in your work. And Liam Neeson. Uh, goes on to tell a story about how a friend of his, uh, a female acquaintance, was once uh, sexually molested, raped, and uh, and that he was so upset and taken by this, bad choice of words, uh, that he walked the streets for two for a week or something like that with a baton in his hand. He calls it a kosh because that's what they call it in Ireland, okay. I believe. Uh, looking, and in, these are his words, for some black bastard to uh, to get into a fight with, so he could kill him. Uh, now Liam Neeson. Whoa! Yeah, I- I'm surprised you hadn't heard this one. Um, uh, because if I'm saying, as I'm saying it out aloud, I'm like, no, no, you got to really hear the whole thing to kind of like explain. It. I'm I'm trying to do like just the sort of overview uh-huh. of it. Um, and and you know Liam Neeson's is trying. So I-, I thought about this a little bit, and I wanted to break it down because I know as soon as you just say those words out loud, it's like, yeah, cancel Liam Neeson. But but I, I wanted to just try to put it in context again because I think that's what I was separating art from the artist uh, episodes were. And this again, okay. not a defense of Liam Neeson. This is just trying to understand where this statement came up, how it came up, what is the context of the statement, why people are responding to the way the the that they are to the statement, uh, and and you know, and then go from there. Very quickly, first one is uh, perceived intention. I believe Liam Neeson's perceived intention, though misguided or whatever it was, was to uh, describe something painful from his past that he feels remorse for. He explains that he feels very embarrassed by the fact that he did this, and he feels he felt very bad that this had happened, and he didn't understand how he could think this way. And he and he basically says, you know, and I did this for a week, and then I stopped doing it because I realized that was all messed up, and I shouldn't be doing that. Um, and he was basically trying to say. I think, you know, he was trying to explain how revenge kind of is misguided in every single way, right? That, that's, that's the perceived intention of the statement. Sure. Uh, that, that's what I believe he was trying to say. But it became the, the probable reception, which is the second part of this, is that it became, for some reason, he decided to mention race. 
And and I think the problem with the probable reception is that it validates a lot of um, opinions we have about people's biases. Uh, it, you yeah. Know, like, like like he was he was you know in his state in his own words in his own statement again I don't want to presume what Liam Neeson was thinking I don't want to try and misinterpret his words it's 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 over to you to, there is audio of this and you should listen to it. Um, Does the audience have an audible? Whoa! It, it's a one on one with a journalist, oh. and he even says it. He even says as he's doing it, I can't believe I'm saying this in front of a journalist, and and I think his castmates are all like, whoa. Um, but but I think the 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 probable reception has to do with the fact that again it it, it validates people's bi- what people perceive people have biases about you know like this idea that this man was walking out looking for any black person any African American uh, well it was probably in Ireland so any black person uh, to to just assault and you know in his words to probably kill. Um, the, the sort of the randomness, the, the sort of the, the vitriol at, and, and the distinguishing of it being a race, not an individual, um, I think is, is what is, you know, in, in the words of our, uh, of our, uh, friendly, uh, co-host for that episode was problematic, right? So, I mean, I got, I got thoughts. Yeah. Uh, I, I want, I just, I, I know you're hearing it for the first time and I want to make sure that I'm not mischaracterizing it before you jump into your thoughts. No, I don't, I think you were very fair and balanced. Uh, two thoughts. One, when describing someone I don't like or someone I'm, uh, on a, on a mild annoyance level or a, uh, I'm going to, you know, uh, my wish to murder a person, <laughs> you know, anywhere on that spectrum. Yeah. Uh, Again, this is just I, – I never – because my brain doesn't go there, I never understand how people just instantly go to race. Right. Uh, it makes zero – like there's literally zero reason for him to put the, uh, a prefix in front of bastard yeah. um, <laughs> at all except to reveal the inner workings of his mind. Uh, and second – Mm. There's there's a bit here's this is what I this makes me sad and I and um you know the the statement itself does too, um, but that even beyond it like let, let's you know the the race part is obviously horrible and and a and a and a deep uh, look into where his uh, head is at at any specific time but also the fact that he's literally telling a story about how he wanted to murder a person a random person right okay. Now, there's two possible scenarios in that. Right. No matter how sorry he is for it or whatever. Right. But, like, isn't that, like, how how fucked up? Here's... Okay. No, no, no. no. Okay, I, no, ahead, I get ahead, it. Ahead, there's, a, there's a thing... He probably... I mean, he obviously didn't say it correctly. Yeah. But uh, you're literally... There's two possibilities. One, he actually did this and thought this and had some mental deficiency or, or 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 almost illness in him at some certain time that he was just like, and then he realized or he worked through it or whatever. But then he told the story and just no, you dummy. Uh, but then the second thing is the other option is he's just edge lording super hard and buying into his own brand enough and kind of just like told a story he thought would be salacious. Yeah, and that makes me just as mad too because it's like, dude. Like let's, 
The third thing I kind of want to think about is putting it in context of where the statement was issued, how it was issued, or the, the interview was done. Again, it was done at a press junket. Uh, I've always said... <laughs> Smart. I've always said press junkets should come with a disclaimer. Uh, press junkets are weird, weird events, and and I think they're tiring on people. You know, like, basically, you get... You get I'm not again not defending Liam Neeson, but I'm just saying that like you know you it's you, a barrage. You're put into a room and you're basically told to like repeat you know just answer questions you know for a good solid day about this movie, and you're there to try and sell the movie. Yep. So um, you oh, know. Also, let's not forget that literally these people's jobs is, are to talk. Yeah. To so, talk. No, so no, but, no, but literally these people's jobs are to sell the movie, and and I, you would I argue know. that Liam Neeson did a pretty poor job. In this moment. But, but, but that's my point. Like, I get the fact that, like, work makes you tired if you're building a house or if you're in front of cameras for yeah. about an 18-hour period with no... Like, I get it. And you will eventually lose cohesion with your with your thought processes. What I what I do it, like about this... But that this, doesn't make you racist. <laughs> no, no. What I do like about this, though, and I, I'll say this from my weird, twisted perspective, because I've seen a lot of priest junkets. We've cut a lot of priest junket interviews together. Yep. And it's always, like, basically, they're being asked the same question and they're clearly bored. Uh, what I do like is that he did try to tell a story that I'm sure he only told that one person. Like, it wasn't a story he repeated throughout the day. And I was like, I'm sure from the journalist's point of view, it was like, whoa, this is weird that he's just kind of like doing this. Because most of the time what you get with with junkets is they're, they're literally there to sell the movie. So you try to ask any question that's off brand and people just sh switch off because that's not what they're there yeah, to do. Yeah, where was his handler? Yeah, I, I will say from the PR point of view... Uh, they probably weren't that happy about this. But uh, uh, look. Has he come uh, back? Has he said yes, anything? Yes, he went on Good Morning America the next day and said, I'm not racist. And, you know, like, and. and well, then what and was his explanation? It was a story. I mean, his explanation is that it was a story from 40 years ago uh, and that he was telling, you know, he was trying to give an example. So is and, he admitting that he was racist and he, he's worked at not being racist anymore? Because that's the only narrative that would remotely give. Any m minor redeeming arc to this. Not that he's sorry that he thought he should go kill somebody. <laughs> like, yeah, hmm. no shit. That's I'm, the baseline I'm human existence. See, I'm trying to do the thing that I think we talked about in the in the episode last week, which is that not to is to try and explain is to try and understand the context. And I'll watch the stuff. Yeah, I don't yeah. need you to. Yeah, yeah it's you, not. It is not your place to <laughs> to damn or defend Liam Neeson. Yeah, I, I don't want to. I and I I you know look I. I think, again, and I think this is the point I was making in the separating art from the artist episode, is that now we have, an, we have a different context with which to view Liam Neeson and to view Liam Neeson. But I also think there's an interesting thing. I think you said this in the, in the episode, and, I, and I, I only thought about this in relation to... It only came back to me when, when this thing with Liam Neeson happened, which is that I think you said you can't watch Baby Driver now, right? Yeah, it's real difficult. I mean, I tried, and I was just like, Ugh. Yeah, I, I think that we should... As viewers, we should make the the distinction that that people that actors aren't the characters they play, right? No, no, like, no, no, like, no, no. And no. I think Liam Neeson has like built this brand of like you know being the guy who will you know who's got a special set of skills, um, but but that doesn't mean he is that person. And I think and well, I think well, hold this, on, hold on, no, no. And I think this was an attempt to kind of like marry those two things. But we should be aware that you know he's an act. An actor, a highly paid actor, who's there to do a job, and it doesn't mean that the movie should be canceled. Now they have canceled red, red carpet events for this movie now, and I think the movie has some issues in terms of going forward because studios like to kind of, you know, 
connect the artist to the art, you know, kind of thing. So I'm just I'm just saying like there's a, there's a different context now with which to watch Cold Pursuit. There's also the the notion that he is an actor. He is not necessarily the person playing him. I think that it was a very weird thing to say and it was a very unusual thing to say and it's and it's it's a great pop culture moment because ultimately it doesn't matter but but no. someone said it and we get time, we get something to talk about at the same time the the reason why it's a it's uh sort of uh you know a, an extra dollop of problematic let's <laughs> say is that Liam Neeson's whole brand is based around that moment in his life like in a weird way like it's always Re- violent revenge is what Liam Neeson sells in films now. Yeah. So he's ba- he's literally whether it, it for whatever reason like I said is it is it the deep-seated truth or is he trying to be edgelordy uh buying into his own sort of um uh oeuvre. Uh that's a, a, that's an extra dollop of problematic to me because now every time it, what he, what he's going to go back to making not revenge movies like it's just it, that that hurts my ability to to watch a Liam Neeson revenge film at this point more than it would. It just it's yeah, it's yeah. not uh, not good. I yeah I I'm not on the canceling Liam Neeson train. I think I'm more on the let's let's talk about it. You know, let's uh, talk about it. Maybe maybe Liam Neeson thinks about some things and then goes back and figures out what. And again, I'll watch the stuff and see if maybe maybe he already did this. Right. Um. But uh. You know, there there are ways to be actively apologetic and and truthful in your apology about something like this uh, and and the way and why you did what. Uh, And so far, based on the minimal information I have, that has not happened yet. So maybe it will and maybe things will move forward. I don't know. If you have an opinion about Liam Neeson or problematic artists, or uh, including ourselves, uh, or anything to do with movies, and uh, particularly the movies that we'll be talking about right now, you can email us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod. Please tell us your revenge fantasies um, (laughs) (laughs) about how you would kill either Matt or Shahir uh, in weird ways. That's a terrible thing to don't do that. Why would you do that? Because again, I like context. I would love to just, I would love to break it down. I don't care if somebody sees something. I just want to think about how they see it. I, you know, like I that, think that, if you got a death threat, you would not be looking at it in a in a cohesive. Mm, let's break this down. Sort I of think way. I, I okay. So let me put it to you this way. <laughs> I have re- not death threats, but I have been assaulted uh, because of my race. Yes. Right. And I, I, I in fact, I've made a movie about it. Uh, I don't think about um, the assault. Uh, so much as I think about the reason behind the assault, and that's just, that's just me. Um, but uh, yes, you're right. If there was a legitimate threat to my life or my family, that's what I'm saying. I would have a a more primal response. But but I I think, and I you know like the reason we did the separating art from the artist episode is I I want to be able to think about the context behind things rather than just react to things. I so, I agree with that thing. I'm just saying, don't invite weird negative shit into your life. Or I, mine. <laughs> <laughs> write love stories to us. Write weird fan fiction of us. Don't write about how you want to. Man, Shahir, erotic fan fiction. I'd take that over over how would you they're take gonna, that? where would you they're going to kill would you, it. Would you give it? Yeah, but both. Would, Why not? Yeah, I don't know. Equal opportunity. Uh, but speaking of someone who could give just as good as he gets. Ah, one Richard Cheney. Ah, Dick good Cheney. old Richard. Good old Richard. So but, this, uh, I, I. I <sighs> I was trying to do research I, I, yeah. for this episode, 
And I was going back and I was just looking at like what a political scandal was before 2016. Oh my god. And it's like it's literally like peewee league stuff at least in the in the public discourse. I'm I mean, not saying it doesn't have importance. Uh, just the perception of it is so skewed. Yeah, I think my favorites uh, from the Trump Cheney era would be um, "Fool Me Once." Uh, you can't fool. You know, like "Shame on Me." Fool me twice. Uh, you, I can't be fooled. Can't Re- be fooled again. Yeah, can't be fooled again. <laughs> and the uh, the mission accomplished gap. But then, of course, the the biggest. This is the thing about. The distinction between the Trump years and obviously we're talking about the Trump years, uh, two years so far uh, versus the Trump uh, versus the Bush Cheney years, is that we did, on the basis of a well recognized lie, go to war during the Trump uh, during the Bush Cheney years. Yes, uh, and that led to the death of some six hundred thousand Iraqi uh, civilians. Yeah, and uh, and we're still we're still around. There. So on the basis of like whether Trump says something stupid or whether we go to war and, and kill a lot of people on the basis of a lie, there, there, I have heard this argument uh, put forward that, that Trump is still better than Bush. It depends on, you know it depends I mean? on your metric, right? If you want to look at um, if you want to look at the death toll, you could equate to people in a very sort of uh, linear sense. For I the people who that. are dying, I think that would be the only metric that's, that matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but also, you also have to look at sort of um, the things that are being dismantled to slowly torture, basically, or, or, or st- I'll use the term starve, I mean it both literally and figuratively, um, many marginalized groups in America whose numbers would be a lot greater than that. Again, they're both tragedies. Uh, I don't know which is what is worse or whatever because one is sort of very direct and one is sort of uh, sy- systemic. Yeah. Um, I-, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but but I will say what I what I sort of meant was not like let's figure out who's the worst. <laughs> I'm saying the optics of oh the optics of are what's going way on. different. Now. And that's to be honest, that's not. I'll even say this: uh, the the optics are not all Trump's fault. The optics of everything are. I would say it's it's more in the hands of the fact that we live in a society where Twitter exists. Yes, it's <laughs> on us and our media. <laughs> yeah. Um, and social media wasn't as much of a factor in the Bush Cheney. No, years, and, right? and, and and I truly believe <laughs> if anyone in the Bush Cheney administration had this tool and realized, like maybe Rumsfeld right. or something, right? Like had this tool and realized that there would be a base of people that would just like them if they flew off the handle consistently enough. Right. They would have done that. <laughs> there, like, there's a great documentary called um, oh god I've got, it's an Errol Morris documentary about Rumsfeld uh, which I did see it's a first person documentary it's called The Unknown Known um, so I, I, and I think though the thing in The Unknown Known is that you get more of an insight into where Rumsfeld is coming from? Well, he's played for as a as a, I mean, which is fine, but played for as a joke in this played by Steve Carell. I, I guess what I mean by that is that uh, you have before social media, you had more than 140 characters to explain what you're trying to say, right? And and the problem is now we've got 140 characters, and so we're just navigating towards extremism. Maybe I mean, but then again, I, the the thing I the the one thing I like about Twitter, that everyone talks about 144 characters. You can do a tweet chain, and it's way more. Like you just sort of can you can write as long as you want on Twitter. I've read some amazing what I would consider Twitter essays from people. Right. Um, I, yeah. No. No. I I understand that. I guess what I'm saying is though that prior to the prevalence of Twitter, you had to 
you know, you had to put out a full press release or you had to have a full conversation or there had to be an entire... And know. people didn't have devices where they could check those things instantly. Right, yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, it's good and bad. Yeah, <laughs> uh, mostly bad. Um, <laughs> but this film uh, starring... Uh, uh, <laughs> Swear to me. Yeah. Uh, using a similar voice, Christian Bale. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a lower, a lower um, energy level Batman voice for mm-hmm. Dick Cheney. Uh, what did you think of uh, of his performance overall? Yeah, let's. I think we should talk about the technical merits of the film before we before we actually dive into the actual politics of the film. That's what I was trying to do without calling it out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, no, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I was I was agreeing with you. Um, uh, I, you know, there's a thing about Christian Bale. Remember uh, a few years ago on uh, yes. it was a Terminator Salvation, yes. the famous tape. Uh, and you know I that th- a grip. Yeah, no, it was the DP. Oh, uh, and and I, you know, like there's lots of back and forth about how this happened, why it happened. Didn't didn't he wasn't racist in that, was he? He was just a dick. No, he wasn't racist. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. No, managed to stay away from racism. Just, 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 just an just, awful human being a in a workplace. Yeah, but. You know, there's a thing about, I've read about, uh, I think I've read a few interviews with Christian Bale, and there's one thing he says, which is that, uh, he, first off, in terms of that moment, he was like, I'm I'm very embarrassed by this moment, I should be chewed up in public yep. for it, you know, you have, you're perfectly entitled to make fun of me, it was a terrible moment for me. So, you know, take that yeah. for what it will. Um, the the second thing I, I remember reading him, him saying, because uh, he's been an actor for a long time. Uh, and I think both his, neither of his parents were actors. And and at one point, his family was fairly poor, and he was kind of providing for the family. But he say, he always says that he thought what he did and got paid very well for. Remember, he started as a very young child, um, you know, most famously in Empire of the Sun. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, uh, he he always thought it was really silly. He thought he thinks, and he generally thinks acting is really silly, and it's absurd that he gets paid so much money to go and do this sort of, you know, you know, to play act, you know, and and to pretend to be other people. And so, with that in mind, he's like, so if I'm gonna do it, uh, and I'm getting paid so much money for it, uh, I should bring my A game to everything I do, you know, like that's and 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 the, the, his rationale for doing the weight gain, the weight loss, the physical transformation, you know, the the sort of really immersing himself into right. his performances is based in part on the fact that he just kind of like this is it is kind of silly that I get paid to do this. <laughs> so if I'm gonna do it, I better come prepared every time. Yeah. Like I better be the best it can be. Otherwise, you know, like and, and I think what he's talking about there is the the sort of you know, like people phoning it in, you know, and and being divas about like acting and stuff, and it's like oh, you kind of are like actors are great, but there's a lot of people working on a film, and to presume that your role is more important than others, which is what the economics of of Hollywood kind of does, is kind of hard. It it, it does kind of put you in a strange place, and I think and I think Christian Bale has kind of always responded to that in an interesting way. So I like Christian Bale. I have no, yeah, I like Christian full, Bale. Fine, as a full stop, I, uh, I think he's the best Batman. Um, and Michael Keaton comes a hot second. I think, yeah, no, he is the best Batman. Um, yeah, I'm out of the fence on that. Yeah, yeah, we, we, that's another conversation. But I, I like that he does. Kevin Conroy's the best Batman. Uh, fair point, fair point. Um, I like that Christian Bale comes prepared every time. And I think, you know, the, the physical transformation that this movie requires of him and that he delivers is extraordinary you know it is extraordinary i i often find with with christian bale he's not like um there's something about his performances where i see the mechanics of his performance in almost everything he does yeah but i don't he's working so hard you don't mind it it. i don't mind it you know like daniel day lewis for example is a chameleon but 
He's a, he's this got this. You true, lose him. You completely lose Daniel Day Lewis in every performance. You know why I think it is? <laughs> so Christian Bale plays uh people that are um might uh, be experiencing uh, either a minor or a major mental illness yeah. very, very well. And that's not that's not saying yeah, that yeah, he yeah, himself yeah. or whatever, but the, the, his acting choices and how he builds out a role, I think, exacerbates the sort of undercurrent of that feeling. I mean, the, the one the, the thing about his Batman, for instance, yeah. is it's psychologically when, driven. It's, when he's both Bruce Wayne and Batman, you can sort of see like. This is a broken dude yeah. trying to fix something in a really shitbox way. Yeah. Uh, with the only tools he has, which is money in his fists. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> and and you're it, like it, yeah, at it, its core, that's a very Batman thing. Uh, it's not the aspirational part of Batman, which I enjoy more. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, you know. You, I mean, you see the work going yes, on you under see the an American hood. Psycho. Yeah, you, American you have, Psycho. Like, it's just all, um, and even in this, when he's being, when he's portraying uh, Dick Cheney. Yeah, you, that, that's the thing. It always feels like an affectation. Like, his performance feels like a performance. Yeah. But it works. Yeah. You know, like, and I, I always feel like I appreciate the work when I see it. It's why, honestly, Terminator Salvation and him as John Connor, I think, didn't work for me. Because that character character is not has never been at least up to that point portrayed in a, in in a similar vein. I'm really bummed that Terminator Salvation didn't turn into the thing. I I didn't think it was a great movie, but I liked the kernel of the idea for that movie. It and was I, trying to take the the series in a different direction yeah. other than leaning on Arnold coming back again and again yeah. and again and redoing and, and the I timelines. Kinda, and I like that. That's cool. I it, no it wasn't a great. That. It wasn't. No. The, it, the movie had problems, but, no. I, well, I, but I don't think Christian Bale was movie. one of them. Yeah, uh, I, I don't. Uh, I, he was not. He did not do a poor job. It was not the the character of John Connor was not the character that I was used to, nor had been set up in a series of films beforehand to be. That that didn't bother me. I, I just think the film itself kind of had problems, regardless. Yeah. Uh, this has been the only podcast no, about, about Terminator Biden. Salvation. Yeah, no. are we avoiding talking about Dick Cheney? <laughs> is that no, what we're doing? No, no. Well, well, but this is okay. Hold on. Yeah, that's one of Dick Cheney's crazy superpowers, oh, right? right? Oh, you think we've just been Cheneyed? We, I think, inadvertently, because listen, <laughs> Dick Cheney, and even in this film, he's not an interesting dude. Yeah. Like, the, the life around him is fairly mundane, and he has little pockets of, of things that, like, a media uh, entity might latch onto. His daughter, for instance, mm. uh, his various heart attacks, <laughs> shooting a guy in the face. <laughs> those things should be things to give you, like, you know. In anyone's life, those would be major events. In but Dick, Dick Cheney, Cheney has a way of, he's a fucking shadow wizard. He can just sort of, like, meld into the background of whatever's going on and still maintain control. And... I found it interesting, at least in this film, and I and I know um, this is not a documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, Although you could be confused about that, not well, that, you personally, well, that's but the I, thing. yeah, it, it sets itself up in various ways to confuse you about that. Yeah, um, the, the, I'm I'm curious how accurate the beginning of this film is, the early years of Dick Cheney's life. Like, did he literally just? bumble around for a while, work hard for a bit, get into Washington as a low-level thing, and then kind of just, like, wait for his moment and wait for his moment and, like, make calculated jumps at the right times? Hmm. Like, I- I'm curious of that, because, like... I mean, I think they, 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 they set it up at the beginning of the movie to say, you know, Dick Cheney's a notoriously secretive person, and this is as close to the truth as we can get. We tried our fucking best, I think, is, the, is how the movie opens. Yeah. I think that's the catch-all for saying, also, we don't know exactly how this worked. Also, but... when I read that at the beginning of this film, this little disclaimer, <laughs> and we tried our fucking best, I was like, oh, you're... 
you're just gonna lay it all out there that you're trying too hard. Okay. Oh, is that okay? Is that the way you read? Oh, I, like so. This is interesting. Um, this is the way you read the film as as trying too hard. Like it literally was like. It read to me like a teenager, like trying to seem badass, and I was like, "Are we doing this right now? Like, you might want to at least try your magic trick before you're like, the cards were up my sleeve. Like, it was very, it was weird. Yeah, uh, it, it it definitely started me off on the wrong foot. This film, as far as a involvement or enjoyment or engagement mm. level, was all over the place. Right, not at a nice even curve where I like sometimes a film loses me and does something cool to get me back, and I'm happy about it. Right, this felt like just like an untested roller coaster. <laughs> I know we've been talking for a little bit, but like, and I know it's probably not even worth doing. But no, no, I won't, I'll read it. I got it. But like, just tell us, you know, the the IMDb synopsis. The story of Dick Cheney, an unassuming bureaucratic Washington insider who quietly wielded immense power as vice president to George W. Bush, reshaping the country and the globe in ways that we still feel today. Accurate, accurate. Not, not. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a biopic about Dick Cheney. Yep. Um, but but there's an interesting thing about this. Okay, so you 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 know Adam McKay is obviously the stalwart of uh of I guess you would say modern American comedy. You know, the director of Anchorman, Anchorman Two, the Ballad yep. of Tell, uh Ballad of Ricky Bobby, Tell, uh, Talladega Nights. Yep. Um, you know, has this sort of has a foothold in in what we've called uh I think absurdist. Um, the words "dumb comedy" aren't aren't the right words because they're sm- they're they're more sophisticated. The plots are smart. The characters are dumb. Yeah, it's kind of this this uh, sophisticated, fairly sophisticated uh, idiocracy. Not idiocracy. The film, yeah, but. yeah, exactly. Um, and you, you know, but in the last two films that Adam McKay has done, he switched he switched roles between this and The Big Short into something more. Uh, aggressive, and I think the reason is I, I listened to an interview with Adam McKay, uh, and uh, I'm not sure if he said this or the interviewer said this, but but reality is outpacing satire in terms of comedy now. Um, <laughs> That's a and, good line. Yeah, and I think and I think that is you know like he talked about how uh, from uh, he the 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 exact thing that he talked about was that um, Trump saying you should rake the leaves after California wildfires. Is like a line that he would write for Ron Burgundy, the Ron Burgundy, the presidential years. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's that ridiculous, but that is the reality we live in now. And I think what that's done for for Adam McKay is it's fueled him with a sense with with like a new life's purpose, which is to make films that 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 uh, I guess, and this will sound didactic, but educate rather than uh, rather than placate. No, I think I think, and this mm. this is I agree, yeah. but I think the education that he's providing isn't necessarily like uh, like movies like The Big Short and this didn't educate me. No matter how many times you put Margot Robbie in a bubble bath, right? Uh, what they did was kind of show me and and, and reinforce an idea uh, or or break down an idea of like okay. The world, everyone in the world of, of power, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's presidential, whether it's monetary, etc. We always see as like, oh, they're the best and the brightest, and they've done they've done the work, and they did they've they've maneuvered through this system, and because they're so smart, they've gotten to be in these places of power, and therefore, whether depending on if you agree with their politics or their or whatever they believe in, you agree with them or disagree with them, but you can't deny that they are at least good at what they do, right? That, that's our perception. That's before. our perception of it. Right, what right. these films do for us is kind of show the the hidden shitty truth <laughs> that the world is set up 
for dumb people a certain percentage of dumb people that are in the right position to fail upward and that does cause infinite problems with an interconnected system that relies on these people the system is based on the idea that the people that are in power are very smart right and the system only works if that's the case, right. you have checks and balances here and there, but I mean, you could look at the financial crisis. You could look at where the United States is right now. Like, there's just too many. It's all based on believing that no matter what, the people at the top deserve to be at the top because they are the best at whatever they're doing. But the game is rigged, or the game, because it's so complex, I won't even call it rigged. People just figure out a small percentage of where to be smart to catapult themselves and then we get knocked into places that are that are terrifying right. and my my bringing this back to the films that uh, that he makes this is the kind of thing that he is educating me on now. Right. Uh, the fact that, like, you you, you, you you know, used to make a joke about dumb people moving forward, but then it's like, oh, no, here's a fun way of showing you that's been happening forever. Right. And that's a weird, terrifying concept, uh, and he's, he's making it mass market, which I do think is important. Yeah, I mean, and his films are kind of positioned now as, um, as award winners, I think, you know, since the success of The Big Short. Um, and the thing about that, you know, like, and again, but I, I don't think that's a new idea. I think, you know, like a film like, uh, Dr. Strangelove, uh, pretty much sets out to do exactly that same thing, which is that the, there's an absurdist tone to the world that we haven't really acknowledged. We presume that everyone in, at the top is smart, but everyone is driven by primal instinct. I think, I think that's the fundamental truth of human nature. The difference, though, between, say, uh, Dr. Strangelove and Big Short or Vice is that Dr. Strangelove is so deep in farce right that like it's not it's not recounting super accurate historical events and the people surrounding them it's it's like going over the top with it but but for example an alfred Molina serving serving a torture menu a, is, a, is 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 in the vein of absurdist satire that that illustrates but that's that, a bit of a sketch in the middle of the main point like the the main point being the darkness and the dumbness that we're sort of seeing through, uh, well, Doctor Strangelove, I guess, had a. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen it, to be honest. But like, had a bit of a. Um, I I think. Oh, just, sorry. Continue. I was gonna say had a bit of a um, a slapsticky joy in a, right. in a but sense. But that's that's the mode of operation. I think what I'm saying is the underlying the underlying idea of Doctor Strangelove is that people that that humanity is driven by primal instincts, not rationality. Sure, sure, and, sure, sure. And sure, sure. that is that is kind of the truth of what you just said about yeah. the Big Short and and uh, Vice. Um, and, and I think th there's a couple of th thoughts I have about this movie. We, we've talked for a while before we even, even really assist whether we... We talked what, about we, Christian Bale. We talked about <laughs> Liam Neeson. Yeah, a lot of things. Um, is the thing that I wanted to think about was, it was actually the very, 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 very last scene in the film, which happens post-credits. Um, which is the quote that I mentioned at the top, which is a, a girl saying, you know, I can't wait till the new Fast and the Furious movie. It's going to be lit. And there's basically a, a fight breaks out between the, the focus group that they have where they talk about how, uh, why is it only liberals are making these kinds of movies? Um, you know, I bet you, you, you voted for Hillary or something like that. And the thing that I was thinking about was that, you know, like, Biopics tend to be, you know, uh, for the most part, the, the 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 great man theory of filmmaking. You know, like uh, behind the thing we love, there is a great man, or you know, and and I mean man in the plural sense, not in the not in the actual gendered norm sense. Um, right. But but you know, the great man theory of of filmmaking, which is that the reason why we make this film is to elucidate why there is, you know, why we should appreciate this person. 
And the thing about liberal filmmaking that I think is really interesting is that the the way it way it operates around Bush and Cheney, uh, particularly the you know Republican presidents, is that is it's the the antithesis of the great man. It is the it is the the idea that there is a you know as you just said the idiocracy behind the person that elevated them up. And I was the thing that I was trying to think about when I when I sort of put it in those terms is where are the great man movies made by conservative filmmakers about these people. And and I'm not sure that they exact there I, I found I found and thought of a few examples. Is there any good Reagan movies? Uh I don't believe there are. Huh. I don't believe there are any there I correct me if I'm wrong about that. But then the films I you know because like for example in the Bush Cheney era there are films like W by Oliver Stone which I don't think is a flattering portrait of that person um, the films around Nixon aren't flat not you know like even just even this portrayal in the what post are you talking about? Uh, his portrayal in the post recently was like this this like he was the shadowy figure yeah. um, you know like only seen through windows there are a couple of examples of of films that take a stab at Democratic candidates or Democratic presidents uh, I, the one that comes to mind is the Ides of March uh, with George Clooney, which is about a fictional character, but who's a fictional democratic character who isn't all he's cracked up to be. Um, but I think for the most part, but that was a movie probably made by liberals as well. It was made by liberals, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, I, but I think for the most part, film there there aren't many films uh, about conservative heroes that elevate them, other than. The only one, the, the, okay, so so Clint Eastwood is one guy who's made you know films like American Sniper, which is kind of you know lionizes uh, sort of conservative ideology. Yep. Uh, the other person that I could think of is Dinesh D'Souza, uh, who is the documentary filmmaker who basically says that Trump is the greatest president since Lincoln. But the one thing you have to remember with Dinesh D'Souza is he was just official, he was convicted for uh, for wire fraud and and pardoned by Donald Trump. Um, so. <laughs> So take that with what you will. Yeah. I, I, I Context. Guess, yeah. I, I guess it's an interesting thing, though. Like, right? Like. So here's my take on it. Yeah. Uh, and this is some. I'm going to butcher some scientific studies that I've read. Mm-hmm. Uh, people with more uh, right-leaning uh, views on the world are more cold and calculating. And I don't even mean. I don't even want to mean cold as in a. I'm not trying to make it sort of like a negative thing yet. Mm. Uh, it's they look at um, big picture things and they um, they look at the macro and they don't particularly care about the micro so long. Like psychologically, based on all of their issues and problems, um, as long as they know that the thing is or they think the thing is going a certain direction for the majority. Mm. Uh, people with sort of left-leaning things uh, show uh, are more concerned a lot of the times with the micro, and by th- and a lot of that is, um, to be honest, the human condition because that's sort of the smallest bit in all of these cogs, right? Mm. So emotional resonance and uh, empathy, yeah, uh, things like that. Um, now, if you look at the the type of mindset of person that becomes an artist or a writer or a filmmaker or a musician. Um, oftentimes those people have, uh, in order to be successful in those fields, you need to have a certain ability to tether yourself to an emotional resonance of people, of, of, of a person outside of yourself. Uh, and therefore, because of all of that, uh, there are way more, uh, left-leaning people making films than right-leaning ones. And, and even the right-leaning ones that do it because there are, they are out there, of course, um, it doesn't seem to have the emotional grab, uh, like weight or pull 
that a, a left-leaning one would outside of like the you, – you could obviously make a film to give uh, your viewer, no matter what the belief structure is, that dopamine hit of guess what, you're right. Right. I mean, uh, not there's great things and bad things say about Michael Moore, but he, that's his bread and butter is sort of like doing the dopamine hit of like, yeah, you're right, singing to the choir sort of thing. Right. Um so I'm not saying that both sides aren't guilty of that. Of course they are. But I that I think that's why you can't you're struggling to find like a legitimate like like where is the great Republican biopic? Yeah. And and that I think you said it exactly uh, as I was going to say it, which was that uh, liberalism or even just being in the arts requires empathy. Yeah. You know, like being able to write about something requires an empathetic view of that thing. Unless you're literally just writing about yourself. Right. Or, <laughs> and and um, and the interesting thing, I guess, with the, the, the liberal films about conservatives is that they're not, uh, they're not necessarily – I mean, they do try to empathize. Like, I think this film does try to empathize with Dick Cheney in some way. But these aren't, like – these aren't, you know, uh, li- you know lambasting – or uh, these aren't films that are, like, elevating Dick Cheney up into a position. They're basically trying to reveal the man behind the curtain in a way. And, and I think, you know, um, the problem – that you have there, and I, I, you know, like again, I'm a liberal, uh, you know, like bleeding heart, cons- you know, liberal. So I'm. This is the, you know, you tell me Dick Cheney is evil because he, you know, like led us into a war in Iraq that killed six hundred thousand Iraqis. I'm like, yeah, that's that's right. He is, you know, like when when Christian Bale gets up and says, I I had the help of Satan to to portray Dick Cheney. You know, I'm like, yeah, you know, that's 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 me. I I I, I get it. You're 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 talking exactly to me. Okay. But like, but but is that effective? You know, like like do, does does preaching to the choir kind of work? No, that's the whole thing. Like <laughs> it it literally does nothing to further a discussion because a discussion you need to have the two sides of something come to the table. Mm. This is something where anyone who believes Dick Cheney was a great man, let's say if they are out there, yeah, uh, the, and not just a, a Machiavellian uh, icon to look up to. I'm saying like an actual great man, yeah. Um, because you can't deny you can't deny that he wasn't good at what he did. You can't deny he wasn't influential. That and and, and what he was good at was being influential. Like that's yeah. the yeah. the thing. Um, but yeah, you, you, there's no way there's no way to portray him. I mean, he left office with a 13% approval rating. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be hard to convince. But but I think, you know, for example, the film I think about is um, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane is a movie about a fairly terrible human being, yes. but allows you to empathize with his concerns. And I think the the reason I th- think about that is, a, is that I, I fundamentally, while I am on board with everything Adam McKay is trying to do with Vice, um, and Vice is talking directly to me, um, fundamentally, I think there is a little bit of a disconnect in terms of me understanding Dick Cheney by the end of this movie. And also, there's a disconnect with... Uh, it's funny, because it is speaking... It, it wants liberals to go see... Like, this is a movie made for... It's pointing at us, right? Yeah. Uh, but it also treats its own audience... Even from that very beginning, we tried our fucking best... Like, almost like the movie, like, the movie is entitled to us being on board with it and being for it because we are liberals. And I got a real bad vibe throughout from that. Right. 
Uh, even to the point where, and I don't know if this is a directorial choice that made me feel this way, but like this movie has a great cast. Mm. Um, Sam Rockwell as George Bush is funny. Uh, Steve Carell as uh, Rumsfeld is funny. Um, Amy Adams as um, Lynn Cheney is kind of very dark and 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 I wouldn't say funny, right. um, but like there's a, there's a really great cast behind this. Um, the but even in their performances, it's played very other than Dick Cheney, other than Christian Bale. To be honest, um, all the supporting cast seems very like it felt like an SNL sketch that went on too long, right? And like it felt like um, everyone is in on the joke, right? Because you look at all these liberal people playing these right wing people, and like it, it, it felt a lot of times, and maybe this is accurate to even how Dick Cheney was in office. It felt like a lot of times that Christian Bale was in a different film than the rest of them were making, uh, and, and which, so. which could be because he's he's playing. It's kind of like the it's the, it's an energy issue. I think we sort of even said with the way he portrays things. Christian Bale has not been in a film like this before. I mean, he was in The Big Short, right? But not like the, It's not like it's not the. He wasn't playing. Oh, he did play a real person. He He's, yeah, he played. A real he person. wasn't a. Um, he wasn't a. I guess what I'm trying to say. He. Everyone in The Big Short mm. felt like they were on the same page. Right. This film felt like he was making one movie to me and everyone else was making a slightly supposed to be more, I don't know if it's funnier or irreverent or whatever film. And maybe that was on purpose because Dick Cheney did sort of like live in the shadows, not be so forward in front. He would have felt disconnected. Mm. Um, I think my main point about this, because we have been sort of going around it for a bit, um, while I enjoyed the funny parts of this movie, I mm-hmm. thought now we'll get into just sort of like specific spoilers, I guess, because we're like what? Yeah, yeah. we're like fifty. If you minutes want a spoiler in. for the uh, the Bush Cheney years? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But no, but I'm talking about specific, specific, <laughs> yeah, specific spoilers, not uh, historically, but yeah. um, but in this film, uh, there's funny moments. Uh, I think I actually laughed out loud and like cheered at the fake ending halfway through. Right. Um, that I thought was a genius move. The sommelier thing is funny. Mm. The um, the because Alfred Merlina is the man. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the um narrator being the person who is the guy he got the heart donor from. Yeah. yeah. Was very smart. Yeah. I I saw that coming a mile away. Though. I didn't. Yeah. I, I had forgotten a lot of the history about it because again, my brain is filled with 2016 to now. I just I I guess because that person wasn't every man who in no way would be connected to Dick Cheney. I was like, this person. Is, I thought maybe it, it was going to be a family friend or, or a long lost son or I don't fucking yeah. know. <laughs> um, the but then like it, this movie kind of stops about two thirds the way through and tries to sort of like change its game up in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it made me like even down to the end where it just plays like a really poorly written house of cards mm-hmm. when he gives the monologue. Yeah, and I'm just like, I don't. Uh, you know, you know what the thing is here is I don't mind that monologue. I just don't think the context for that monologue has been set up. It you, hasn't. You, no, that's you, why. You know, like I I don't mind that the film kind of 
uh, becomes anti-structure, you know, as the further we go along. And I think, I think, you know, it's, it's exactly what McKay did with the big short. I think it's, it, he, he hints it at the beginning of this film, uh, you know, and, and even midway through with, with the, you know, the fake ending, that sort of thing, you know, people calling out the, the, the absurdity of being in the movie. Um, but I think the problem is that there, for me, what this all should be working in service for is giving us an understanding of a man we are, we are repel, repulsed by. Right, like we, which it doesn't. We yeah. it it shows us exactly what we thought, other yeah. than the stuff they might have made up in the beginning because he's reclusive. I like the attempt here, though. There there are there are moments where we were trying to understand uh, Cheney as a com uh, as a complicated human being. You know, like this idea that he uh, has a, a a gay daughter. But isn't that's the only moment of complication for him in this entire? The rest of it, he's kind of just like um, no. Well, see, see, I think I think that's an interesting touchstone, and I think I would have been interested in seeing the film kind of explore that a little bit further because it's it's basically at some point he has to betray his daughter to further his politics, you know, and and I think the interesting thing is that what I don't the the film kind of glosses over the Halliburton years. Yeah, uh, and and then and then dive straight back. So you know the structure of the film is you know uh, Dick Cheney is a is a ne'er do well who who's kind of like fail, you know fl- flunked out of Harvard. Uh, his wife uh, Lynn kind of gives him a good talking to, and, and he says, "I will never let you down again." And then we're immediately thrust back into Congress, where he's an intern now working for Donald Rumsfeld. Um, and then he kind of learns the inner workings of politics. Um, Rumsfeld is uh, Rumsfeld is ceremoniously dumped by um, is it Reagan at that yeah. point? Yeah, dumped by Reagan. Um, but but Cheney gets a kind of glance. Uh, you know, like there's the I think there was an extraordinary scene where. Um, Reagan is in a room. I, was it Reagan? I'm hoping I, I'm getting that right. I, I'm I feel pretty like, sure. I, I might be getting that wrong. Please correct me if I'm wrong about that. Uh, is talking about um, uh, the politics of the Vietnam. No, so it couldn't have been Reagan. It must have been earlier than that. Um, but when Cheney was an intern, it must have been Nixon years. Um, Possibly. Yeah, because he's talking about like the the fact that these people are in a room talking about um, bombing Vietnam. And um, and then we see flashbacks. We we see cutaways to to you know villages in Vietnam who will eventually be bombed. And and Cheney is kind of getting the the I get a, le- a lesson in the connections of the halls of power to the people that affect. Although I think the film is saying that 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 is what we're seeing, but I'm not sure Cheney is absorbing that because everything Cheney does later on, you know, I you could argue this film was kind of suggesting that Iraq is Cheney's Vietnam. Um, you know, suggest that he didn't learn that lesson particularly well, or he didn't take away what I think is the the liberal interpretation of that lesson, uh, which is that you know, like the decisions you make affect the lives of a lot of people to the point of life and death. And it's, and I don't think Cheney no, you know, understood that uh, to that context. He's obviously a fairly smart individual, uh, but I'm not sure he's an empathetic individual. Um, and and then it does this thing, which is that it glosses over, I think, a period of like thirty years. Yeah, and then he's just a CEO. A just and you're a like, C- what? Wait, yeah, you're the CEO of like the, a major corporation. It, that really lost me because I was like, okay. I mean, are we to assume that he just sort of bumbled his way that way, got one thing right, and sort of did the way he got into politics? And if so, how, like, I don't know. Right, and Halliburton, you know, like because Halliburton is kind of the the sort of elephant in the room when it comes to Cheney's vice presidency, which is that his interest in Halliburton, you know, uh, post his, uh, post his, 
post leaving Halliburton and then taking a role in the office has always been played up as the reason we might be in Iraq. And the, I think the film is then trying to do a couple of things, which is that it is noted. And I, and I think the final monologue talks about this as well, that Cheney's response to nine 11 was a pendulum swing further than we actually ever imagined, which is why he was able to justify, uh, going into Iraq. You know, his, his, you know, this this is the 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 sort of the uh, the the most generous interpretation of why we went to Iraq is that 9/11 caused a sort of uh, moral pendulum swing in American politics, which suggested that we should be taking a more proactive role in the countries that we are involved in to never let this happen again. And you know, Iraq was just one of those places where uh, American politics feared the next um, 9/11 could come from. That's the most generous interpretation of it. It's not. Ab, it's not correct in any way, shape, or form, because the truth of the matter is Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. Um, but that is the reason we somehow went there, or weapons of mass destruction. Listen, they're, like, kind of near there, so... <laughs> yeah. And they sort of look the same, right? Ugh. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that final monologue where Cheney turns to the camera and says, uh, you want me here, you know, like, I, I, you can't blame me for doing the thing that I was put here to do... Um, which is kind of like a, a great Aaron Sorkin sort of uh, uh, a few good men, Jack Nicholson's character kind of thing. You want me on that wall um, kind of moment. But it doesn't ring true to the contradiction that there was a financial gain for uh, for Cheney in yeah. Halliburton. Um, and and I think that's there's there's a sort of I think where the film kind of doesn't quite work is is lining those things up. I think all the elements are in play here. I like the idea that you know, like for me watching it, um, there's a sort of amazing shot of Cheney and I think his family riding a horse uh, in the you know in their ranch or something like that. And it was like this idea that the halls of power is based on like. Western ideology, the sort of like confrontational. They even like, bring up Bush's ranch; they bought it so he'd be more uh, electable. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know, like it sort of. I I like that the film kind of like gives us that imagery, but I don't think it entirely connects to me the Halliburton years to the the Bush years. Entirely it, connect. It doesn't connect it at all. It just jumps. It, it just sees it. It just sees it was there. And I think there's one scene where like um, where you know. Uh, I, you know, again, I think one of the sort of more interesting points of narration was the fact that, you know, uh, Cheney was in the, the war room during 9-11, but he was the only person there with his lawyer, um, which I thought was kind of, you know, like, oh, that is an interesting thing. And, you know, this idea of uh, unitary presidential power, I, I forgot the, the exact phrasing of it, um, is sort of interesting, but it doesn't quite connect to the next scene, which is where the Cheney and his lawyer kind of like, hand wave away the concern about no bid contracts in Iraq, which I was like, oh, that's a big deal, right? Like that is the that is the walking contradiction that is Dick Cheney. Right. Um, you know, this idea that on one hand, he would argue that there was a necessity to go into Iraq. But on the other hand, liberals, people on the other side of this argument would argue, well, there was a financial benefit to you going into Iraq as well yeah. that is really problematic and shows both sides of this coin. And I'm not sure, you know, like I think my summer, some summation of this is I'm not sure that the film kind of exactly balances that contradiction. Maybe because it's too hard a contradiction to like figure out, but I think other movies have done this and other well, stories... Yeah, it's not. That's yeah. the thing. I don't think it's too hard to figure out. I mean, look, villains, the best villains in narrative uh, fiction or no... 
uh, believe that what they are doing is, if not right, then justified. Dick Cheney, I'm sure, believes what he did was not only it was not only beneficial for him. Of course, he knows the financial gains that he got. Yeah, but I guarantee you, in order to sleep at night. He has moved things around in his mind to be like, no, this needed to be done. I kept America safe, and I made money on the side. That, like, that's that, that's, that's his final, what, his exactly. Final. But it, but the film doesn't. Oh no, the it. film no, the <laughs> film doesn't do that. It, it like it tries to go one direction, and then it snaps you into this one, and that's why I sort of said it. it it's written like a bad episode of House of Cards. House of Cards, you know, Kevin Spacey notwithstanding, I'm not mm-hmm. talking about that, just talking about the show in general and the structure of it, when Frank Underwood w- mm-hmm. looks at the camera and turns, it's so crucial to the tone and sort of everything that that show is yeah. building on. And here they just do it as a stinger. Yeah. And and it, so so not only structurally is it incongruous, uh, incongruous, excuse mm-hmm. me, uh, but it's also um, uh, character-wise not there. Um, I, I guess my final thoughts is, I didn't hate watching this movie. Yeah. Uh, it has redeeming qualities. Christian Bale's performance is good. It just felt a little all over the place. Its jokes were funny, but too few and far between. And um, some of the, you know, some of the stuff that's when it tries to stab at a bit of a deeper level, uh, it's it's almost it, it it feels very amateur in the story that it's telling that the, how it's telling the story. In the thing I will use an example of for that is yeah, Movie Bob pointed this out, and I was I thought it was very um very apt. Um, it's like oh my god, every time he has a heart attack, he's having a, a moment where his actions are actually a failure of having a heart and doing something evil. It's like oh, he's heartless because of heart. Like there's like ties like that throughout this movie. Hmm. That uh, that are there, and you're like, "Yup, those exist," but it's not done with an uh, an apt enough hand to make them effective. And I think, honestly, my entire one of this this movie set me up not to like it from that beginning. Right. And and it didn't do anything to fight its way back from that. I just, I still saw this movie as this movie and its creators think it's way smarter than its audience. And uh, and it's going to talk down to you the entire time, even if you're going to enjoy little bits of it. And maybe that's a Dick Cheney legacy. Right. Um, but it doesn't work for me uh, as a as a film overall. I think um, I I actually uh, I like the stru- the anti structuralist mode of operation that Adam McKay is taking with us. I think you know, like it plays better than if he did it as Ron Burgundy, the presidential years or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, and I like the sort of um, the sense that he is breaking the form and doing, you know, breaking the fourth wall at times and, and you know, having characters come in talking about absurdist ways. And I, I He only breaks uh, the fourth wall once. The, well, he, the rest of it, he, there's absurdist, there's absurdist He's, he's also got a character talking to the audience the entire time. That's way a through. narrator. Yeah, and, but but that person is talking to the audience and talks to you when he's dead as but well, na- right? But a narrator's job is... that not is breaking to, the fourth wall? No, because a narrator is a... Excuse is me? A, wait, hold on a second. A You're, narrator is breaking the fourth wall? A narrator who's a character in the film is breaking the fourth wall. When Ron, when Frank Underwood turns to the camera, is he breaking the fourth he's wall? He's not the narrator. He's a character. He's the main character. He's, he's, a mo- he's monologuing. D- a narrator... Okay. Uh, he's, he's a character in the film, right? Is the, is the person I'm talking about, the J.C. Plemons character, a character in the film? Not until the joke is played, I guess, is why. You see him talking to the camera at the beginning of the movie. 
You see him all the way through talking to the character. But you also see him. This is my this is my differentiation. Yeah. I'm sorry. You you hear him exactly as much as you see him in the sense that you like he's also talking over the scenes as well. He's narrating. Yes, he does look at the camera. So okay, there's there's a there's a. 50, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Bit. You just jumped in with like uh he did. We don't break the fourth wall until the final bit of the because, movie. Because yeah. okay, one of these characters is the narrator. Is that is but, that character a character in the film? Barely. He okay. is. He's a narrator that uh, that sometimes you see speaking to you. I, I'm not sure why. <laughs> because this is. I'm. I'm literally telling you the difference. Okay. When, Tell me the difference. When he is narrating, yeah. sometimes he's looking at the camera. Other times, like a narrator does, you hear his voice over scenes. Okay. That's I, what. It, that's what narration is. All right. With d- Dick does Cheney, he, does does he break the fourth wall? No, because his character is that of the narrator who happens to be. So a, he never breaks the fourth wall. I don't think so. Okay. I. You're 100% wrong, and I'm not sure why you needed to do do that. Where Dick Cheney is a character that never does that until the very end, it feels weird. Okay. I'm... Uh, uh, okay, no. Look, have have your moment. I I don't know My why moment. it is your moment. I don't know why you need to interject that that wasn't that that a character who's talking in the film who break who talks to the audience isn't a fourth wall break. It is the the motivation of why that character exists in the film is the different is the difference. But that's not a fourth wall break. I don't know why uh, why this is this has got you hung up like that. You needed to like. I don't know why you're getting so upset about this. I I literally just don't think that a narrator. Is an is a is a quintessential fourth wall break in a in a film. But this narrator is a character in this film who we see multiple times over talking to the audience. But the role of this character is the narrator. But it's still a character in the film, right? It, we're no one's <laughs> enjoying this. Just no uh, one is enjoying this. Yeah. I I am not enjoying this at all. But anyway, I enjoy the fourth wall breaking that this film does throughout the film. If you want to disagree with that, be my guest. Well, I already did. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, the the I, I do like the mode of operation of this film. I like that, you know, and, and I think it comes back to that idea that that reality is outpacing satire, and that is the transformation that 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 Adam McKay has decided to do as a filmmaker. And I think it I, I think all the elements are at play here, but what is missing for me is a character motivation for Dick Cheney. And I think and I think it comes back to that question of the speaking to me as the audience. Now, I am a liberal, obviously, you know, again, as I say, bleeding heart, um, you know, uh, liberal, so that it, it, this film is going to talk directly to me. But I think what needs to happen in order for this to work is that, and I, and I think there is an attempt to do this in this film, it's just not as, as successful as I would have hoped, is that McKay, uh, Bale, everyone involved in this film, not only needed to understand Cheney, but needed to empathize with Cheney. Because if you empathize with Cheney, you can identify how he makes his decisions. And then you can allow the audience to realize that that is morally bankrupt. But what we don't get here is a sense of like, what I, what I didn't get is a sense of why he makes the decisions he makes. Like, how does, what is the, what is the mechanism in Cheney's brain which allows him to make these these terrible decisions and i think i think again you know looking at the nixon years where he's where he's understanding how the halls of power fix people in vietnam to his own you know like his uh, intervention in iraq i think the elements are at play but they never quite connect to me and i think i think that's 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 sort of an unfortunate failure of the film but it's not a it's not an entirely unsuccessful movie i think i think you know again if you're a 
uh, a bleeding heart liberal like me, this is just going to like reiterate what we believed and, you know, you know, basically play into our own biases. I don't know if that's the most effective way mode of filmmaking. And I think if you're if your goal is to try and understand a person who is um, by all accounts, you know, by, you know, by many accounts worse than Trump. Uh, you know, I think that's what that's that's what a lot of people are saying. Um, then, then your 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 goal should be to understand that person on a real fundamental level, so they can understand, so so that the audience can understand them. You know, I think the the quote is is that every villain believes that they're the hero in their own movie. I don't know if we if the film kind of allows us to understand. Cheney's point of view on that. Well, it doesn't. I mean, that's it straight up doesn't. You yeah. understand the mechanics of the way he thinks. You never understand what he believes. Right. And and maybe that could also be the point. That might be a bit of a disconnect as to why I don't get it or right. I don't connect with it. Yeah. Because I expect uh, a human character to have motivations beyond just the mechanics of the situation that they are in. Right. But if anyone was that robotic... Maybe it was Dick Cheney literally just going from a point where he was disappointing his wife to a point where he's like, well, I'm going to make something of myself because that's what I, that's what you're supposed to do. And then he literally just kept, quote, making something of himself with no real – his motivation might have just been, I, I don't want to be a failure. You know the film that I think of when I think about characters who are monsters but, but – the films allow us to see their monstrosity in a sort of human light. The film Monster? Uh, th that would be an interesting <laughs> one. Uh, I, I remember not loving that movie entirely, but yeah. um, the one I think about is the Coen Brothers movies, The Man Who Wasn't There, um, mm. the, uh, played by uh, uh, Sling Blade himself. What is, his, uh, what is the actor's name? I've completely gone blank. but uh, It's okay. Um, I think about how that I think there's a there's a line in that movie where uh, where the where one character says to me I've done some terrible things but what you've done is monstrous and and we understand what that means because the character isn't there and you know there's a hollow shell of a man that is just making decisions but that's what that film is about yeah. you know what I mean and and I think you know I think in the I hate to say this because I think Adam McKay is a smart filmmaker. I think he's he's genuinely a very intriguing, smart guy. Uh, but I think this film plays too much into his own biases, and it's it's very evident from what the film is trying to say. But it plays too much into his own biases, where that I don't think he's interrogating the subject as strongly as he can. Now that may just be difficult because Dick Cheney is a notoriously secretive guy. He's also in a in a bit of a way. Uh, this is a stretch, but it still plays off the feeling of what I got from it. He's also interrogating the audience in a weird way. Yeah, uh, and it's it's it, it, maybe not interrogating is the wrong word. It, the the entire film, throughout it, has cracks of antagonism towards film going audience, even the, down the, to the after the, the credit the, scene. That I mean, last that, line that's is pretty much that's it. the punch. Yeah, but but like. And then that's where, it, but even from the beginning, I'm. You can't get an effective message across with negativity up front. Like right. you just, you're not going to do it. Human beings aren't built that way, and you're always going to be put on the back foot and ready for the defense if someone attacks you right away with something. And this film never lets you get that moment of sort of like. I am now with this and I'm going along with it for the ride. It always does things to kind of be like. Well, you didn't know this, or like you didn't like it. It's like, or or like, well, we tried. Like, what the hell? Like, it's very, it's it. It has this weird tinge of defensiveness, 
Uh, and I haven't experienced that, honestly, in a movie that I can remember, a one that's so blatant from the beginning just being like, Calm down. We know, like it's not all there. Well, he does. They do. I think. I think the thing that's interesting is I think that is a thread that runs through the film. It is, um, you know, like he does say at the beginning is that the one of the things about Dick Cheney is that he, he because he's so bland and boring, he allows us to forget that he's there. Yeah. And we are placated by our need for bullshit, basically. You know, like it's the idea that you know. The reason why we have uh, Trump in the presidency is because we're reality TV addicts, and that's what we are drawn towards. We're not really rationalized human beings. And I think, I, you know, like the, the last line where this argument's going on and then someone says, I can't wait for the next Fast and the Furious movie, it's going to be lit, cut to black, is a sort of state, you know, it, it, you're right, it's condemning the audience for our, for our placation of these kinds of people. Right. But I think there's a tendency... Uh, with the anti-structuralism that this film does, that can make that feel slightly smug. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, you're and, not gonna, you're not gonna get. The, the thing is, what's the goal? Is the goal of your film to turn people around and actually be like, oh my god, you're right. Like I've been a little bit complicit. I've just been watching popcorn fill for the entire thing, and that's affected the way I think about the way the entire world works. Like, there's ways to do that, but you have to be more subtle with an with a softer hand and a little bit different trickery, other than like, hey, you're stupid for enjoying shit. And it's like, oh, like you're not gonna. I'm saying if that's the goal, this movie does not. I don't think personally it is. It is a failure toward that goal. Um, because it doesn't do it in a way that any human being would resonate with. It just feels like a slap on the wrist. And um, I think failure is a harsh is, is, saying, too, is too harsh for for, the, for for the the good that this film does. Sure. But uh, but, I, but saying, I agree with you. Yeah, I do I'm, agree with. I'm you. not saying that the structure of the film or the acting or the or the craft of the film is a failure. Of course not. I'm saying if and I don't even know if this is true. The goal is to affect the way people think about what they consume. That message is a failure. Um, it does because it literally talks down to you every time that point comes up, and you will never change someone's mind in that way. Especially, maybe in a discussion, you would, but a piece of media never will. Yeah. Um, so for all that reason, I think it's I think it's a a fascinating. I think it's fascinating because the questions that the film poses, but not because the film itself poses them, yeah. but because its existence poses these questions. Sure. And I think um, I, I'm not uh, the biggest fan of Ben Shapiro, but I was curious to read his uh, his review of the film, which is, of course, you know, pretty much uh, uh, a liberal bleeding heart kind of. Uh, com- you know, he he kind of took it as as pretty prototypical liberal propaganda. Um, and I was, and I I I hate to say. I don't necessarily disagree with no. Ben Shapiro on that point. Um, and and it's an interesting one because I think we could do better, but, but you know, again, this movie's speaking directly to me, so I can't really fault it for doing that. Uh, I just... I, Wait, how many Avengers are in this film? Because that's the sort of the way it's... Uh, it, you know, I went down a real rabbit hole with the uh, conservative superhero ideology. Oh, uh, and we we'll talk about that sometimes. Yeah, there's a, there's a governing theory that conservatism has sort of embedded itself in Hollywood through action movies. Oh, weird. Uh, uh, and, and most conservative ideology is portrayed through the prevalence of, uh, of action heroes. You know, the idea that, that uh, the moral 
um, the broader moral context is more important than the individual uh, moral context. And, and I, you you can even take that back the, with the action movies of the 80s being a sort of different thing, that which is a, a bit more of, a, I would say, a Republican look, where it would be like, the lone man knows yeah. best, and the government doesn't know what it's doing, but he does. Yeah. Like, especially like with like a lot of Arnold schwarzenegger type. Uh, I mean, I think like Batman that. is kind of like the ultimate conservative superhero. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, so it's it's a fascinating thing, and I think, you know, I wonder, I wonder where the conservative filmmakers that want to convince us liberals that 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 Bush, Trump, you know, Cheney, all these people were heroes. I wonder. I'm I'm not exactly sure where they are. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, maybe there is stuff I haven't seen. Uh, please email us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail or hit us up on Twitter if you are a conservative or you you have an idea about what a conservative lionization of this of these types of people are. I will watch. Uh, films like that uh, with just as much as an open mind as I did watch Vice. If I'm not exist. sure I can sit through a Dinesh D'Souza documentary, to be honest with you, but I'll give it a shot. I mean, if listen, if it's well made, then it'll have my attention. It is not. Well, um. crap. Then I don't know. <laughs> anyway, this has been the only podcast about the film Vice. So clever on that name. Actually, it's funny. At first I was like, meh, I'm smug about the name. I was like, no, it's pretty good. That's yeah. a solid actual, like, that's kind yeah, of the it's, perfect there's layers name. There. Yeah. Uh, Shahir, when you are not bleeding your heart all over your liberal pajamas, where can folks find you? Uh, my pajamas also, I have Ronald Reagan pajamas, by the way. They, <laughs> uh, they, you can find me dressed up in my Ronald Reagan Halloween mask uh, a la Point Break at my website, www.shahirdowd.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Matt, when you are dressed as the bat who roams the night uh, to uh, support conservative ideology, where can people find you? You can swear to me at M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com for my life and works, or you can criticize me for not wearing hockey pads at uh, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z, or Emperor MSK on Twitter. Uh, also, you can uh, realize that it's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me over at ExtraCredits.com, where we are doing a bunch of good work. We're just releasing, uh, actually, podcast listeners, this is a perfect tie-in. Uh, today that we are recording this, uh, episode 407, we are doing a breakdown on Extra Credits, uh, YouTube, uh, just search Extra Credits. Um, it will be the Bandersnatch episode, where uh, James and Jack, who are the guests on our on our podcast about Bandersnatch, uh, ja uh, James wrote uh, an episode uh, breaking it down in a different light, sort of in a shorter form, six-minute thing. Uh, and it's very, very good. And it's all animated and fun. Okay, right. Before we go, I promised we would do this at the top. Oh. Uh, now, the next next week is going to be the Oscar uh, nominations. What shall we put down? What, what, what are our uh, picks um, for 2019? Do you want me to run through the names again? Uh, sure. Uh, so, for best... I guess we'll, we'll just do the top three uh, things here. Best picture. We've got Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Green Book, Roma, Stars Born, Vice. You've seen them all. What's your pick? Black One. Panther. Okay, uh, I'm going to go with Roma. Lead actor, Christian Bale, Bradley Cooper, William Dafoe, Rami Malek, Viggo Morgenstern. Oh, Rami Malek. I'm going to go with Christian Bale. Lead actress, uh, Yalitza Arpicio from Roma, Glenn Close, Olivia Coleman, Lady Gaga, Melissa McCarthy. Uh, Roma, I'm, I'm not going to butcher her name. Uh, Yalitza. Yep, uh, I'm going to go Olivia Coleman for that one. Okay. Uh, best director, this will be the last one. Spike Lee. Pavel Pawlowski, who's Cold War, which we're going to be reviewing next week. Yagos Lanthimos, The Favorite, Alfonso Cuaron, Roma, Adam McKay, Vice. So, uh, Spike Lee. I'm going to go with Alfonso Cuaron, Roma. There so we go. got uh, Alfonso Cuaron, Spike Lee, 
We got uh, Yalitza. Make it rewind. Yeah, yeah. Yalitza. <laughs> no, I just, I just want to put this down because we're going to, we'll have to evaluate these at some point. But it'll be in a couple weeks. Yeah. Olivia Coleman. Uh, and uh, we got Black Panther and Roma as our picks. Yes. Let's see how that goes. Oscars next week. Keep an eye out. Yeah. And uh, next week, we'll be coming at you uh, with, I believe, Cold War. Cold War. The most frigid of the. Maybe Winter Soldier will show up. Uh, sure. <laughs> It was a stretch. It was a stretch. All right, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.